Good morning, everyone. Looks like a number of you have come this morning disguised as empty pews. That happens every now and again when the, uh, the weather is like this, but I'm glad you're here. Be careful out there. Uh, you never quite know what's going to be slick and what's not. Special welcome to any of you who are bold enough to have visited with us today for the first time. If this is your first time with us or your first time in a long time, we'd like to give you a packet of information about the church. So if you will simply raise your hand, Pastor Kevin will get that packet of information to you. There's a little card we'd like for you to fill out, and then if you'd put that in the offering plate later on, we can acknowledge your visit by letter. So just hold your hand up, make sure that he sees that, and he'll get that information to you. If your row has not yet passed the friendship pad, please pass it down the row and then back again and note the names of the people in your row and be able to greet them uh, by name later on. I'd like to ask if you do me this favor. I'm finding out that there are some people, you're not going to believe this, but there are some people who don't read the bulletin. Have you ever heard of any such a thing? But what I'd like to ask you to do, I'm going to call attention to some inserts that are very important. Coming up this weekend, we've got the Discover the Relational Wisdom Conference that's coming up. That's the white insert. And if you would just take a look at that, we'd like for you to sign up. And if you will do so today in that registration form that is here, it would be a big help in planning what goes on, materials and that sort of thing, to know exactly who's coming. That will help us in all of our relationships, irrespective of our age or gender or anything else. It's for everybody. And we'd like to encourage you to come to that. Um, Ken Sandy is a very fine speaker. This is an area that... Uh, in his field, and uh, we're, we're sure he'll do very well with that. We also have a um, kind of salmon-colored insert with regard to a women's retreat. And ladies, I just want to be sure that it doesn't get lost in the middle of some of these other ones. Make sure that you take a good look at that. Easter cantata, if you would like to sing about our Savior during Easter, tells us about this Thursday, a very important time, if you'd like to come, we're going to be doing some listening through the, the cantata music together. You'll get a feel for it. Uh, everyone's invited to come to this. If you have questions, see Pastor Derek, who incidentally is ill this morning, so if you'd be praying for Derek, um, he, he's been ill a few times recently, so pray for him. And um, if you have any questions, you can contact him later in the week. We trust he'll be able to receive some questions then. We also have a yellow insert media ministry update for those of you that are interested in listening to our services online, uh, for those of you that are interested in getting the services on CDs. Uh, this will give you all the information. It's recently updated. It will be something that will be very, very helpful, and it's up to the, up to the um, this Sunday. So be sure to take a look at that. We've got, also got our financial report from the trustees. And that's a matter for you to take a look at that. We always like to have an informed congregation about our finances. An informed congregation is a praying one, and we'd like to encourage you to do that. So with regard to that, there are, there are lots of other announcements that we could make, but please be sure to read the rest of the bulletin. We're looking ahead to the missionary conference in three weeks from today. There are ways that you can help that are still detailed in the bulletin. And we also are looking forward to the old-fashioned potluck dinner during the conference and you can get details about that as well. Tonight, uh, we don't have this in the bulletin, but we will be installing new officers, those who are newly elected or re-elected officers of the trustees and the elders. And Wednesday night, this didn't appear in the bulletin, Tim Slothauer will be speaking on, and our prayer emphasis that night is on unreached people. 
So please keep that in mind for Wednesday night. And then we have in the bulletin here with regard to the ministry of remote parking, especially on a day like today. Um, we aren't going to have any more like this, though, on Sundays till next season. This will be the last one, uh, maybe. But the ministry of remote parking, if you're able, park in the lot across the street or on the streets, but don't be parking here. Allow close by the building for those folks who are maybe a little bit older or less ambulatory. So. Uh, that's the ministry of remote parking. If you look at the order of worship this morning from Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, it talks about worship that is going on in contrast to a fake worship that Herod was involved with earlier in this chapter. But th- these are the magi or the wise men who saw the child, that would be the Lord Jesus, with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Let's think about worship in, a, in a, this moment right now of silence thinking about what real worship is, that it's all about the Lord and it's not about us. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we start thinking it's all about me when in fact it's all about him. Let's take a moment now in silent prayer and meditation. Our Heavenly Father, as the song goes, coming back to the heart of worship where it's all about you, it's not about us, and we're sorry for the thing that we've made it because sometimes inadvertently, little by little, we begin to think that when we even come together in corporate worship that it somehow becomes about us, and it never is. It's about you. So help us to come back to that real heart of worship where it is about you. And thank you so much for your presence here with us and within us as we honor you and as we magnify your name together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from have to work a little harder this morning than normal and spread out a little bit to find folks to greet, but let's make sure everyone in here has a real warm greeting this morning.
Let's take out our hymnals and sing number 125, Joy to the World. Please keep out your hymnals. If you turn the back to 636, reading on the Magi's visit. Some of you are thinking we stopped preaching Christmas stories, it would stop snowing. <laughs> so we know to blame for that, but it's all right. Reminding ourselves of the Magi's visit. It's your first time with us. You notice from the order of worship, we do three things together here. We'll read this responsibly. I'll read the lighter print. You'll read the darker print. Then we'll stand together and sing praise, glory to our God, the Gloria Patre, because he's unchanging, his word is unchanging and true. And the inside of your hymnal covers will recite or read the Apostles' Creed, those truths that we should all be believing and following and using in our daily lives. So those three things together. First 636. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. When they had heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Stand, please. Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah 118 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, this shall be white as snow. him In the kingdom of heaven 
it's snowing again. And it's told that the angels lift their hearts and rejoice when one traveler turns home from his way to the Lord. If somewhere someone's turning, he's given his all, then God's grace like the snow is beginning to fall. And somewhere it's snowing, see the soft drifting down as the snowflakes surrender to the hardening ground like the good grace of Jesus that now covers our sin in the kingdom of heaven it's snowing again. Please join me as we pray. Father, we just thank you for the theology of joy to the world because we come before you this morning as a redeemed people and a joyful people. And we're redeemed not because of anything that we've done, but because of the sacrifice of your son and the blood of Jesus that has purified us. Lord, we just ask that you would humble us and refine us as a people, that you would help us to live obedient lives in service to you. We thank you for this nation that you've given us, and we just pray for our leaders that you would give them the wisdom necessary to navigate the problems that they face on a daily basis, that they would turn to you. But our deepest problem as a nation, Lord, is the fact that our hearts are not near you. We pray for spiritual revival, that your Holy Spirit would blow through this land and that you would revive the hearts of the people, that we would turn back to you. We thank you for the freedom that we have to gather and worship you this morning. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who do not have that freedom. Help them to stand fast in their faith and to be bold ambassadors for you. We thank you for those that volunteer to keep this nation free, and we pray particularly this morning for Jordan Ida. Thank you for his recent graduation from Field Artillery Officers course and for his acceptance to Ranger School. And we ask that you would provide the necessary clearance paperwork so that he would be able to continue his training and that you would give him the physical stamina to do well at Ranger School and it, he would grow in his walk with you and be a faithful witness to his fellow soldiers during this time. This upcoming weekend, our high school group has the opportunity to go on their annual winter retreat, and we just ask that you would protect them as they travel and prepare their hearts for the message that you will share with them this weekend. And may it be a great time of spiritual growth for our young people and that they would return to us changed by you. We pray for our college students this morning as they are represented by Angela and Jessica Taylor. And we just ask that you would help all of our students as they try to complete their studies with the condensed semester due to the weather. Though they're there to study academically, may they also uh, continue to be bold witnesses for you. We thank you for all our elders and trustees and for the sacrifices they make as they serve you. Help them to be bold like Caleb, who is willing to do the difficult things for you no matter the cost or how impossible the task appeared. Grant them wisdom, discernment, and humility as they lead. 
We also pray for our missionaries that we are privileged to support both here and around the world. Protect them and bless their ministries. And we particularly thank you for Kyle and Leah Robinson this morning and for the birth of their daughter, Hannah Elizabeth. As she grows, we pray for her salvation and that she will never remember a day when she has not known you. Help Kyle and Leah as they are starting to prepare for Handicamp this summer, particularly with the retreat next month, that you would provide them with the necessary wisdom, patience, and time to get everything done. Even now, prepare the hearts of the campers as they learn about you this summer. Now, as we continue to worship by giving back a portion of what you have so richly blessed us with, may you bless it and multiply it to further your kingdom, both here and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.
invite us all to stand again and take out our hymnals. We're going to sing hymn number 163, As With Gladness Men of Old. Again, let's join together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for music. We thank you for those who have penned the lyrics of some of these songs of worship. And I ask that you'd help us to carefully know what we're singing because we make some real commitments in words. I pray that even now we'll be making some real commitments in actions as we offer our lives to truly follow you, to go where you want us to go and do what you want us to do. And I pray that even as we look back at a familiar Christmas story this morning, that each one of us will be challenged to make sure that we're following through because words are so easy. But help those actions to be there as well. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Once again, as we're beginning a study in Matthew, we find ourselves back in some of the Christmas texts. And what I will try to do this morning is to not go over some of the same things we just did this past Christmas, although it's inevitable that we're reading them, but we won't major on some of them this morning. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. During many Christmas seasons, we've examined this passage to see the Magi, their origin, their obedience, their desire to worship, their gifts, the star that guided them. All of these were individual messages, and they're kind of all in this one little passage now. A lot of other themes that are there, but I'd like to isolate simply one huge contrast here this morning. We'll touch on some of the others, but one huge contrast in the scriptures this morning, we'll see two men, one of them at first, actually a child. We're going to see both of them who have been identified in one way or another as king of the Jews. We've got a little bit of a, a rivalry here. We've got some irony that is going on because we're going to be looking at Herod and Jesus, both of whom could make claims to be king of the Jews. Herod, however, was an imposter Herod was an extremely evil man, and his diabolical plan to kill the baby Jesus was inspired by Satan himself. Now, why do I say that? I say that if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, we'll understand there are things that are going on all the time in the visible world and the invisible world. Revelation chapter 12 is going to tell us about both of these In Revelation chapter 12, we believe in literally interpreting what is here, which means that that doesn't outlaw symbolism. And when we're told something is symbolic, then we take it that way. And we're told here that there are some symbols or some signs that are going on. The first thing that we're going to see here is the symbolism of a woman. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And I'm going to stop here and scoop us a little bit. This woman is Israel, pictured as Israel. Some may think it's Mary as we read on. It's not and it cannot be. It's more than that. It's the nation of Israel. 
And we can see this, but we won't take the time to do it in many, many ways. Now, as we continue reading, we're going to see another sign. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon, and I'm going to stop here and just tell you the dragon is Satan. How do I know that? Well, when we keep reading, you'll know that this is Satan. So we've got a picture of Israel about to give birth to a child, and we've got this dragon, Satan, who's getting very active in this story. It says, The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child. And let me stop and just mention that this has got to be the Lord Jesus. We see it very clearly. So we've got the invisible world, we've got the visible world. Invisibly behind the scenes is the dragon, Satan. And we've got, although he's not mentioned by name, Herod as his tool, who is going to be the instrument that Satan is going to use to try to destroy this child as soon as he is born, and that would be the Lord Jesus. And that's what we're going to be seeing also again in Matthew chapter 2. So let me start again at verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Now you can see that that can only refer to the Lord Jesus. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Ultimately, that was talking about the ascension. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Now, just in case we didn't know who this was, verse 9 tells us, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. I'm going to stop there in Revelation. It's a great story as it goes on. But what we have going here is a picture back now in Matthew chapter 2 when the child was born. Satan wanted to have the child destroyed and he used Herod to do that. We didn't read as far in Matthew 12 as Herod doing that, but you know the story and you know what happens. After the wise men don't return, all the babies in the area are killed because Herod is trying to destroy the Lord Jesus, but he's not going to be able to do it. And that's the problem with, with Herod. He's stymied because he's dealing with something far greater than himself, and that would be the Lord God. You know, sometimes we look at the corruption in government and wonder what the world is coming to. Thinking back over our country, can you think of any great scandals in government in our country over the years? Just call out a little bit. Can you think of any? What comes to mind? Okay, I thought Watergate might be the first one. Okay, now we'll, we'll, you can go anywhere you want to. Where else? Scandals involving the government in our country. I, I can't hear you, I'm sorry. Oh, IRS. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe we better not do this. <laughs> I don't, don't want to lose our exempt status or anything. Any of you remember in history about the teapot dome scandal? And um, uh, you were there. <laughs> Robert was there. 
Uh, during the administration of Ulysses S. Grant, there were all kinds of scandals that were going on. And we look back in our country and we say, how awful. And um, blocking bridges. Do you ever hear about anything like that? People blocking bridges. And, and um, you would think that was the absolute worst thing that could ever happen. But when we're talking about Herod and we're talking about that time period, the things that they did would make the political scandals of our country and our history look like absolutely nothing. Because we have a situation in Herod's time, political corruption was far worse. This was a time of suspicion, intrigue, betrayal, deceit, treachery, murder, jealousy, insanity, and a lot of other things that were not quite so nice terms. No ruler could ever turn his back on a wannabe ruler at that particular time. No one could be trusted, and Herod was terrible. He was horrible. Now, we're going to start out looking at him as Herod the Great. History records him as Herod the Great. He did accomplish some things, but he was not great at all, morally or in God's sight. The Herod before us was the first of several family members of a particular dynasty to use that name. There were other Herods. They were rulers of Jewish Palestine under Roman rule. He came to be known as Herod the Great. He ruled in one way or another. Please try to keep these dates in your mind. I know that people don't like historical dates sometimes, but uh, in one way or another, he ruled from 47 to 4 B.C. Now, 4 B.C., many scholars figure that to be the time of Jesus' birth. doesn't make sense to a logical thinker. Why would 4 B.C. be the time of Jesus' birth? But that's what a lot of scholars believe. And it's also quite clear from history that Herod the Great died the year Jesus was born. So 47 to 4 B.C. Herod was governor of Galilee for the first 10 years, and then from 37 to 4 B.C. he became king of Judea, or as he was known, king of the Jews. Herod had some great accomplishments to his credit. One of the things that he did was to drive the Parthians, that's modern Iran and Iraq, he drove them out of Jerusalem and firmed up his rule in the area. Now, if you can see on the map on the screen, it's very important to understand Parthia as we go into this story, and we will see them again. Parthia was an empire at that particular time. Now, if you look on the screen, you'll see on the far left, in the middle of the screen, Jerusalem, and then you'll see over here on the right-hand side, toward the middle, Parthia, and all of that that is shaded, that greenish color, is part of the Parthian Empire you'll understand that that's to, as you're looking at the map here, that is to the east of Jerusalem and the Holy Land. So keep that picture in mind. We're going to be hearing more of the Parthians a little bit later on. But to his credit, Herod drove the Parthians out of Jerusalem, and then by doing that, he firmed up his rule in that area. It's one of the reasons why they called him Herod the Great at that particular time. He was a clever, good fighter, a powerful orator and diplomat. He could talk people into almost anything. He was very cunning. He was very tricky in that particular way. He built a lot of things. He built theaters and racetracks, got the temple in Jerusalem started. He was involved in the building of many other major projects. He revived the city of Samaria, and he built Caesarea. Can you hear the word Caesar in Caesarea? He, he did that, obviously, to please the emperor. 
He improved the cities of Beirut and Damascus and Tyre and Sidon and Rhodes, and he built the virtually impregnable fortress of Masada. And at times, he even helped the poor by contributing gold from the palace. So much to be said for Herod the Great. But the other side, I call this Herod the not-so-great. A.T. Robertson calls him Herod the Great Pervert. He certainly had his bad side. I'm going to go through that. More history than probably we've ever had before or will have since here from the pulpit. But I think it's very important for us to, uh, us to understand what's going on at that particular time. So Herod, with some early problems, he executed a Jew named Ezekias. We're going to see a lot of names on the screen. But Ezekias, Ezekias and his followers were executed. And then Herod was actually brought to trial for violating Jewish law by doing that. The trial was adjourned, and this is going to begin a pattern in his life. It was adjourned due to political influence that aided Herod's cause. That means he knew people in high places. That means that they intervened for him. The political intrigue and the flimsy alliances that could develop at that time were almost continuously changing. One person would become friends with another group of people, and they would aid him and help him. Then they would turn on each other, and then somebody else would come into the picture. It was going on and on and on at that particular time. The, the whole time of Herod's reign, it was very important to him that he aligned himself properly with some of these people. And he played the system very, very well. But Herod's cause was still precarious at this time. He joined the side of Cassius and Brutus. You remember them? Cassius and Et tu Brute and all of that with Shakespeare and Julius Caesar and all of that that's going on. He was a fundraiser for these two individuals, Cassius and Brutus, after they murdered Julius Caesar on March 15, 44 B.C. He had a first wife. His name was Doris, who gave him a son, Antipater. That was named after Herod's father, by the way. After divorcing Doris, and she got off really easily compared to some of the other people that were going to be close to him. After divorcing Doris, he was engaged to Mariamne. He was engaged to Mariamne for five years before they married. And this was a woman who helped to offset the fact that he was not Jewish. He was an Idumean or an Edomite as sometimes is referred to. Not a Jew. Well, that made him unacceptable to the Jews because he definitely was not born king of the Jews. But marrying Mary Omni helped a little bit because she was from one of the former ruling Jewish families. Well, as the fortunes of war changed, Mark Antony appointed Herod and a man named Phaziel as tetrarchs of Judea in 41 B.C. We're counting down now. We're down to 41 B.C. In 40 B.C., there began a lot of trouble with the invading Parthians from the east. Remember, we saw the map just a little while ago, the Parthians who were there in the east. And uh, there was trouble, so much trouble, in fact, that the Parthians actually began an invasion and took over Jerusalem. Herod had to flee the area. He went to Rome where Mark Antony and Octavius and the Senate designated him king of Judea. 
By the spring of 37, and we keep coming down in years, by the spring of 37, he laid siege to Jerusalem, and by the summer he had retaken Jerusalem from the Parthians. We mentioned that earlier. This helped him to get his title, Herod the Great. He eliminated some possible rivals and became known then specifically as the king of the Jews. He punished severely some of the Pharisees who oppressed him, executed 45 Sadducees, and had a great deal of mother-in-law trouble. Can you imagine that with Mary Omni's mother, whose name was Alexandra? Alexandra, and some of these names, if you've ever studied history, these are going to be very familiar to you. Alexandra was a good friend of Cleopatra, who was obviously in good with Antony. And so Herod had to deal carefully with some real intrigue to keep Antony from coming down hard on him. Eventually, this isn't going to make sense at first glance, eventually he killed Alexandra's son, Aristobulus. He was getting very popular. That was not a good thing to happen in those days. If somebody got popular, then the person who was threatened by that would either have somebody killed or exiled or worse. But he killed Alexandra's son, Aristobulus, which really wasn't a good idea because he could have gotten in a lot of trouble for that. But he did it by making it look like an accident. They faked a drowning incident to make it look like an accidental drowning while some friends were dunking each other in the water. Now, I don't know where Rich is right now, but I'd be real careful. It's sport and splash. Um, don't sit near the edge of the pool. Uh, be careful about this, but this was carefully plotted by Herod. And so what was happening now, still, as Herod simulated the most profound grief, he provided a lavish funeral, a very fine tomb. He was so sorry for this death to all outward appearances. Alexandra knew what had really happened. She wanted her revenge. So she got Cleopatra involved by use of gifts, including his great ability to talk his way out of almost anything, Herod convinced Antony that he was not guilty. And then Herod favored Antony in a civil war with Octavius. Now we're down to 32 B.C. When Antony was defeated, Herod skillfully convinced Octavius that he was loyal to him, even though he had been loyal to Antony. Do you get a picture of what we're talking about when we're talking about this individual? talking about somebody who was constantly involved in intrigue, who was constantly deceptive. Many people tried to poison Herod's mind against other rivals of his. Why not? If I wanted to get rid of somebody, all I had to do was to hint to Herod that this person was after his throne or after something that he was doing, and that's what people would do at that particular time. There were many plots to take Herod's life, and so he was aware of many of them. They were true, some of them. Some of them were not. He dealt with the opposition or alleged opposition in what they call a very final manner, meaning that he had a lot of people killed. He finally even executed Mary Omni, whom he dearly loved. He did this in 29 B.C. He regretted it immediately and became filled with guilt, making himself mentally and physically ill. It's safe to say that he was a madman, a true madman at this time. Alexandra thought he was going to die. And so she tried to secure the throne for Mary Omni's two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. 
she miscalculated. It cost her her life. The last 10 years of Herod's life, 14 to 4 B.C., were full of trouble. He was getting old, and there was infighting among his sons. That was complicated by the fact that he had 10 wives. Um, That didn't do him any good either. And they all had sons, and everybody was ambitious for their own sons. He changed his will six times. He even changed it five days before his death. Toward the end of Herod's life, Antipater, who was the oldest son of his first wife, if you can remember that far back, that would have been Doris, Antipater began to realize that he was not the one who was going to succeed his father. He was deeply jealous of the sons of Mariamne, and in order to discredit them, he accused his stepbrothers of treachery, and believing him, Herod had them both executed too. Antipater must have thought he had gotten away with it, but five days before Herod died, Antipater was executed as well. He was accused of trying to hasten the death of Herod, so Herod had him killed. Signing Antipater's death warrant, Augustus Caesar remarked this. He said, I would rather be Herod's pig, some reports say, or hog, others say dog. But anyway, I'd rather be some kind of an animal than Herod's son because it wasn't healthy to be Herod's son. It wasn't healthy to be anywhere near Herod at that particular time. Now picture this. Picture this demented, paranoid, deeply suspicious, violent man. And then came magi from the direction of the land of the Parthians. Can you picture that? Can you picture what's going on in his mind, knowing who he is and what he's become? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Can you imagine what that must have done to him? In fact, what it did do to him. Magi from the east. Where is this new king? Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Not the one who gained his kingdom by treachery and by intrigue. They weren't looking for him. They were looking for the new king. That just set him off in a big-time way gets worse. I actually refer to him as Herod the Great Butcher. You won't find that in the history books. That's just my own designation. But in his later life, he wanted to be king to the very end. He was 70 years of age now in 4 BC. He was at the end of his rope. He was hated by his people. But he had one more trick to play. In fact, this was one of the very last things that he did. On his deathbed, he sent letters to the principal heads of every family in Judaism demanding their presence on pain of death. So all of the key Jewish leaders, all of the patriarchs who were still left in the families, he had them all come to him. They got to Jerusalem. He ordered them to be locked up in the horse racing ground, one of the stadiums that he had built. He then gave the orders to his sister 
that upon his death, all of them were to be executed. That would ensure then that there would be mourning when he died. That would be the only way there would be mourning when he died, is if all the key Jews were killed at the same time, because nobody would have mourned his death. Fortunately, his sister ignored his request when he died and released the imprisoned Jews and let them go home. You see what a sick man Herod was. You see what a vindictive man, what a vicious man he was. You see all of the intrigue that was going on at that particular time. (laughs) When we think about our own country and what has gone on politically over the years, it's nothing compared to what was going on then. It's not hard to see why the news from the Magi had him disturbed. Remember verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. It's easy to see why all of Jerusalem was disturbed. I'm sure they're saying, what's this crazy old man going to do next? How is he going to react? And now we've got these people coming from the east, from Parthia. Sometimes people will say it must have been Babylon or someplace like that. Well, the Parthians are the old Persians. It's where Daniel was, and it's that whole area of Babylon from the east. That's where they were coming from. The time was ripe for another Parthian invasion of these what were called the buffer provinces. In Jerusalem, the sudden appearance of the Magi, probably traveling in force with all imaginable oriental pomp and accompanied by adequate cavalry escort to ensure their safe penetration of Roman territory, certainly alarmed the paranoid Herod and the populace of Jerusalem. Perhaps these Magi were attempting to perpetrate a border incident that could bring swift reprisals from Parthia. So the request of Herod regarding him who had been born king of the Jews was a calculated insult to him who had contrived and bribed his way into office. In other words, these were kind of fighting words that were taking place. And I'm sure Herod took them that way. Here are these people. They've come from the enemy territory, and they're looking for the one who is born king of the Jews. It had to be an insult. But he played along with it. Now we see Herod's typical reaction. If there's a threat to me, kill it. And that's what he was going to do with this one who was born king of the Jews. And so he pretended, he went along with the wise men, and we know this story very, very well. What a ruthless man. No rivals permitted. He thought he could eradicate Jesus as he had eradicated so many others before him problem was now he's facing the son of god the power of god's protection it wasn't time for jesus to die but he didn't know that and he could still try we didn't read this far but look at verse 13 chapter 2 in matthew when they had gone an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream get up he said take the child and his mother and escape to egypt stay there until i tell you for herod is going to search for the child to kill him Remember Revelation chapter 12. As soon as the child is born, let's kill him. Verse 16. Uh, Also in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, and then in verse 16. Tells us, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. 
that was the pattern of his life. That was how he solved problems. Now I come to what I'm going to call some conclusions right now. When I say the word conclusion, please don't think the message is about to end. It's, it's not. I don't want to get your hopes up. It's not. Um, there, are, there are several conclusions I'd like for us to come to. But first, think about this. I've spent a lot of time building up to this, but here was a man characterized by jealousy, worry, insecurity, deceit, lying, murder, insincerity, hypocrisy, and pride. Nearing death, how could a little baby matter to him? It was the very idea of a rival that enraged him. Truly, he was a madman. He killed his wife, his three sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and many, many others, including an estimated dozen or so little babies. A truly paranoid individual. So here's the question. What can he contribute to our understanding of life today. Where's the challenge for us as Christians as we look at his life? How can we learn anything from him? He's on the farthest extreme. No one can possibly parallel him or identify with him. He was a monster. So we're thinking, I'm safe. You're not going to be able to apply anything from his life to me because nobody's like him. He's absolutely the worst. Well, let's see if maybe we can apply some things to our lives. Conclusion one, some worshipers are pretenders. No, not necessarily in the way he was, but some worshipers, some among us right now could conceivably be nothing more than pretenders at worship. So conclusion one, if we look into the mirror of God's word, and remember this, God's word is intended for us to look at it as a mirror, not a window. When I look at God's Word and I see the people that are there and I see the thoughts that are expressed in God's Word, I'm looking there not so that I can shake my head and say, Herod, what a rotten guy that guy was. I'm glad I'm not like him. But to look there, not through the window and see Herod, but to look into God's Word and see a mirror and wonder, what about me is reflecting back that I can learn from? Some worshipers or pretenders? Are any of you seeing in that mirror of God's word that we've just seen someone who pretends he's a true worshiper but instead only cares about himself and his own self-interests? What brings you here to worship? Is it a sincere desire to worship the God who is worthy of worship? Examine your motive. Are you here for some other reason? Are you here socially? Are you here to please an individual? Are you really here to worship? Because in one sense, if we're not here to worship, we're not a whole lot better than Herod and some of the things we've seen about him. So do you suppose we may be seeing in that mirror, maybe some of us are looking in that mirror, we're seeing jealousy, pride, maybe of a different kind than Herod, but deceit, Worried only about ourselves. In a little while, we're going to be singing about coming back to the heart of worship 
And I trust that as we are singing that, we're examining those words and we're responding to this scripture that is before us and we're responding to the mirror of God's word and we're asking ourselves over and over again, am I seeing something that I want to correct? How many of you, when you looked in the mirror this morning, first glance, you looked at the mirror and you said, hey. <laughs> um, or how many of you looked in the mirror and said, oops, got to fix that, got to fix that. Wish I could have an overhaul. There's not enough time for me to get this straightened out before I get to church. When we look into the mirror of God's word and we see what's looking back at us, there's some things we need to fix, and we've got to be very careful about that. We see some dim reflections. We ask God to give us a true heart, a sincere life to live before him. But we want to return to the heart of worship where it's all about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about him. I'm not here in order to get. I'm here in order to give. And so many people come and they say, well, I didn't get anything today out of the service. You didn't get anything out of the service. It's because you didn't give anything. Because if you're giving something, you're giving worship to God, you've got to receive. Conclusion two. Through the mirror of God's word, perhaps, perhaps again we see this dim reflection. We're not going to see Herod exactly staring back at us, but we may see a dim reflection. Perhaps there are those of us who are afraid or unwilling to let Christ take over the throne of our hearts, to take over the throne of our lives. We call the shots. We keep veto rights over God's laws. We might say this, maybe not in these words, but for me to live is me and to die is covered by an insurance policy. There can only be one king. There can only be one sovereign. There can only be one boss, one in control of one's life. It cannot be Herod. It cannot be you. It cannot be me. But the question is, who is the king of your life? Looking into the mirror of God's word, we see one who obviously was the king of his own life, Herod. To an extreme. But what about us? He's not all that important right now. You are. And I am to God. Who is the king in our lives? Conclusion three. We're going to shift to the magi here. And I'm going to call them wise men. We're going to be, Lord willing, going to the English Standard Version later in the year. English Standard Version calls them wise men. I can't wait to get back to wise men instead of magi. I never liked that switch. Um, in fact, a number of the modern translations go back to wise men. So, um, shifting to the magi, there is joy in finding the real king. There is joy in finding the real king the real king of the Jews, the one who was born king of the Jews. And we saw that in the genealogies before. Not the pretender, not the imposter, not the usurper, not Herod, but joy in finding the real king. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, it gives us some words here. It tells us that when they saw the star, and I believe this was a supernatural star, not a natural phenomenon, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed, it says. And that word overjoyed is actually an understatement. The King James Version says they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. 
And the word exceeding is from the Greek word spafter. You can see it on the screen. It means violent or vehement. It's in a high degree, much, exceeding, greatly. That's only one of the modifiers. It modifies the next word. It was exceeding great joy. Great, the second modifier is the word megas. It means big, exceeding, greatest, high, large, mighty. You get a picture that the word overjoyed doesn't exactly capture. Exceeding great joy. Not just great joy, but exceeding great joy. Their joy being colossal. One commentator puts it this way. The original text piles up superlatives to emphasize the extent of exhilaration they felt. When they saw the star, the star came to rest where the real king was. Long, dangerous journey. Can you imagine on their part also, coming from where they were coming from, the known enemy, what might have happened to them? except that Herod wanted to use them like he used everyone else for his own ends to find this other king so that he could kill him. No telling what would have happened to the wise men at that time either. So colossal joy in finding the real king. Conclusion number four is that we can learn an awful lot from these wise men. And other Christmases, we'll spend a whole time or two, a whole message or two, just talking about what we can learn from the wise men. But in brief, they show us that wise men study, know, and act on the Word of God. How did they know there was one who was born King of the Jews? How did they know about the star? They knew because somehow, some way, maybe because of Daniel's influence, they were aware of the prophecies. They also show us that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God rewards those who diligently seek him. And that's what happened. They were diligently seeking, and God rewarded them. They also show us that it is wise men and women who are willing to sacrifice and make great efforts to worship the Lord. They were true worshipers. As we're looking in the mirror of God's word, it's always nice to be able to see something other than Herod in this story, but to see the wise men and to see true worship the way that it should be. And they also show everyone that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was not just for the Jews. Matthew is a book written by a Jew to Jews about a Jew. First chapter includes a Jewish genealogy about a king of the Jews. There are references to the Jewish scriptures. Yet God supernaturally worked to involve a group of Gentiles who were drawn to worship Jesus. Jesus is the Savior for everyone, everyone who will accept the gift of salvation. God wanted all of us to know, not just the Jews. That's why the wise men were there. They were willing to give God their best, not their leftovers. They brought gifts worthy of a king. They were all costly substances. They were in demand in the Roman world. How many of you remember a cantata that we did years ago here called Noel, Jesus is Born? Do you remember that, some of you? The best cantata ever, ever written by light years over any other one. That's a personal opinion. Toward the end, there's something uh, that I, I believe is very, very much impacting, something that has stood with me for the many years since we had that cantata. 
It's kind of a conclusion to this morning. This is the real conclusion. You can breathe easy now. We're about to end. You may have sought for earthly pleasure, things of this world to satisfy, but now you seek another treasure which wealth or money cannot buy. It matters not just where you've been, my friend. The Lord knows how you feel within. And if you'll give your heart and life to him, he'll bring your searching to an end. Wise men still seek him today. His light still shines to point them to the way. Though fools have said in their heart there is no God, wise men still seek him today. Learn a lesson, a negative lesson. We look into the mirror of God's word and see Herod positive lessons. We look into the mirror of God's word. We see the wise men. I hope that you're all wise people still seeking him today in true worship. Heavenly Father, we want to come back to the heart of worship where it's all about you, not about us. Thank you so much that as we see those who came at great sacrifice, perhaps even of their lives, but they wanted to come to see the real king of the Jews, not the imposter. We have, in your word, clear indication that the real king of the Jews came and is coming again. That's the one we want to worship. We want to do it in spirit and in truth. So please help us to that end, even now, even in these closing moments, but for all of our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, let's take out our hymnals and turn to number 133. Let's stand and sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing.
Heavenly Father, as we continue to think about a world that needs to hear so much good news that comes from your word, help us to remember we're your ambassadors. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.